Seth, thank you. Good morning. Great to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us online. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And uh, before we dive into this text today, I want to uh, bring to conclusion the prayer initiative that we've been doing over the last 40 or so days uh, called King Jesus 2020. We've encouraged you to be praying uh, for the uh, the health of our nation and the holiness of our church during this election season. And so uh, now that that election has come and gone, probably, uh, we're going to take some time and just, and just pray and uh, conclude that, that prayer initiative. So let, let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we already sang today, uh, Jesus is the King of kings. There's nobody like him. There's no one with more power, no one with more authority, no one with more goodness, no one with more holiness, no one as glorious or gracious as he is. And God, even when we try to overthrow him with our sin, we cannot do it. And Jesus, we praise you today that you transform us from being rebels who fight you to being adopted as your children. God, we thank you for that. We pray today for our country. Um, God, I thank you uh, for President Trump. God, your word says to give honor to whom honor is due. And he is our president and continues to be our president for the next few months. And so we thank you for him. God, where he has personally and in policies done things that honor you, we give you praise. God, we thank you for him and we pray over these next months that he would have wisdom and courage. God, we don't know what might be coming his way in the next months as president. And so we pray that you would give him your eyes and your heart, and your wisdom. Father, we also pray for President-elect Biden. God, we know that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and you steer it wherever you wish. And so we thank you for appointing him to this role for this season, as that's your will. And we uh, receive that, and we pray for him. Lord, it says in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for all who are in authority. And so, God, we also pray that he would have wisdom and courage that he would do what is good and right, that personally and from policies, he would do things that honor you. God, we pray for our country, for the hurt, for the division. God, you tell us that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Would that be us? God, rather than being those who stir up more division, would we be those who are ministers of reconciliation, just like you have reconciled us to yourself? Would we be agents of peace and agents of love and agents of goodness? God, even in the places where we feel emotionally charged up about certain things, would you supersede all that? And would you get our highest allegiance? God, we pray now for you to bless our time as we open your word. God, even as we see here in this passage, there's nobody like Christ. And so help us to fix our eyes on him. Help us to find our life, not in politics, not in this country, as thankful as we are for it, but to find our life in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're like me. Um, I often find that I think I will accomplish more than I do. Does this ever happen to you? Right? Maybe this happens to you at work. Uh, if you're kind of like someone has a little bit of flexibility over what you focus on at different points, this is the case for me. I'll often have a long list of things that I hope to accomplish and I just get to a few of them. Right? Maybe this happens to you on a Saturday. You kind of wake up on a Saturday and there's lots of different home projects or different uh, things you're going to fix or buy or go do. Uh, sh kids, you're going to shuttle around. You just got a lot going and you sort of imagine you'll get a ton done 
and you don't. And it keeps happening. Is anyone with me here? This just happens all the time. And and what's crazy is we don't ever stop thinking we're going to accomplish more than we do. Why is this? Well, uh, psychologists have said it's because of this thing they call the planning fallacy. The planning fallacies. People have researched this and studied this. The planning fallacy is the idea that we overestimate our abilities and we underestimate the time needed to accomplish what we need to do. Now, what's striking is we don't do this with other people's plans. Other people share their plans with us and we're like, there's no way you're going to get that done. Right? Like we hear, like any of you that have ever gone through the process of, you know, a new build home. And it's like, oh, it'll be four months. And you're like, yeah, right. It's going to be at least eight. Like, it's just, and it'll be more expensive. Like, this is, we can see it in others. We can't see it in ourselves because of the planning fallacy. We overestimate our abilities. We underestimate the time needed. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, we fall victim to a kind of planning fallacy. We overestimate our spiritual condition. And we underestimate how powerless things are to fix it. We think we're better off than we are, and we think the things we could do are more powerful than they are, but they're not. We overestimate our spiritual condition. We underestimate the danger of religion, those things we do to try to fix it. And so today we're going to get a lesson about, about life. Jesus, or I'm sorry, the gospel writer John at the end of this book says he's written these things so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so life is a theme that runs all throughout this book and we're going to see some key lessons related to life, some case studies related to life. And so the first thing that we see today is a picture of life without Jesus, life without Jesus. Take a look at uh, John chapter 5. What you see there is a man who is uh, without Jesus. It says in verse 2, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Life without Jesus is being blind spiritually and lame and paralyzed. It's being in a condition like this for a long time with no improvement and no hope and no other options. It's interesting in verse 3, you see that there's just all these people there. It's this gathering place where people are there. Uh, There's obviously, as we'll see in a moment, some superstition uh, people believed. And and, uh, you can actually, actually, if you, did did anyone notice that there's no verse 4? Did you notice that when you read this? You probably just listened to this story and you missed that, but there's no verse four. At the end of verse three, there's a footnote, and that footnote uh, says that some manuscripts, uh, some manuscripts say that, um, that there was this, basically this idea, this spiritual idea that, that occasionally an angel of the Lord would you know, get into the water and stir it up, and it was like, first one in gets the miracle. That was kind of how they thought about this. And so there's all these people there, they're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed, and this man has been there for 30 eight years. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you have not been alive for 38 years. Others of you that have, can you remember 38 years ago? Very well. That's a long time. He's been in this condition for 38 years. He hasn't gotten better. 
And he doesn't have much hope. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And he answers, verse 7, the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. There he is. There he sits day by day by day, maybe year after year after year. We, we don't know, does the man live there? Uh, does someone drop him off in the morning and pick him up at night? Clearly, he doesn't have a friend that's there to help him get into the water. So he's on his own, and he's stuck, and he's hopeless. And that's very much what our spiritual condition is as well. We are blind. We don't see who God is. We are invalid. We are paralyzed. We are unable to get to God through our good works, through our effort, through anything we do. We are paralyzed. We are stuck. But the difference between us and this man is at least this man knows the hopelessness of his situation. See, many of us think we're better off than we are. We think we actually can see. We think we actually can do good. We think we can actually do lots to appease a holy God. This man knew, Jesus, I, I got nothing. See, the Bible says that we're not just blind and lame and paralyzed, but that we're actually spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Focus on a few of those words. We are dead because of our trespasses and sins. Dead means we have no ability spiritually to please or have life with a holy God. We are children of wrath because of our sins. We follow after the way of the world. We follow after our own desires. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. We are permeated by sin. My friend likes to say, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. It does mean we're as bad off as we could be. Life without Jesus is a life of spiritual Deadness, powerlessness. By the way, th this is why all of our efforts at self-improvement, all of our efforts at change, all of our efforts to shake through all the mental and emotional challenges we're facing and just get in a better place, without Jesus, that doesn't work. And if it works, it works for a little bit, but it doesn't last. Because life without Jesus is spiritual deadness. So Jesus comes to you and he comes to me, he comes to us just like he does to this man and he asks, do you want to be healed? What a strange question. Do you want to be healed? It's like, well, duh. And yet he's been in this condition for 38 years. He doesn't really think it can change. And after a while, in our struggles with sin, in our struggles with anxiety or with depression or with all whatever we're dealing with, and our relational dysfunction and our habits and hang-ups, we, we can start to go, well, that's just who I am. And Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to have this spiritual deadness healed? Now, you might still live with the, 
realities of life in a fallen world. This is not saying that if you come to Jesus, all those problems just go away. But your core problem does. That you can, in Christ, be spiritually alive. Do you want to be healed? Or will you just keep trying on your own? If I just read this book, if I just see this person, if I just have that conversation, if I just have this experience, life without Jesus is hopeless. So what a lot of us do is we turn to religion, and that's the second part of this story that we see, is a life ruled by religion. Now here when I say religion, I'm not talking about uh, religion being kind of the traditional uh, history of the Christian church or something like that. I'm just talking about this principle that a lot of us function in when we think religiously, which is this, if I do blank, then life will go well for me. If I do this, then that, right? This is, this is religion. If I press this lever, this result happens. If I'm good, good things happen. If I'm bad, bad things happen. This is the way we naturally think. This is the way we naturally are. And in this story, we see that there's actually two different kinds of, of religion in play. The first one is superstitious religion. Right, we've already mentioned this, this kind of idea that an angel would get in and, and stir up the water. It's interesting, people have found, this, uh, found where this pool likely was in these five colonnades. I've actually been to Israel. I've, I remember going to this place where they said, hey, this is probably where that story happened. And so people have looked at this and people have been there. Uh, one of the things that people have said is that, um, you know, obviously there's no other place in the Bible that indicates that there was some angel there with like a lottery ticket thing where he would stir up the water. Um, perhaps what happened is uh, one body of water would feed into these smaller pools and when that would happen, something might bubble up. It was a very mineral rich water probably and so there was thought to have baby healing components. We don't know exactly, but for sure it's superstitious. Are you superstitious? I th see, I think we're more superstitious than we like to believe. We're very rational. But you know what next Friday is? Friday the 13th. And do you know when the last Friday the 13th was? Do you know? It was March 13th. It's like, oh no. Coronavirus numbers are on the rise. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. Ah, buy toilet paper. <laughs> We're pretty superstitious. Others of us, kind of without officially buying into it, just unofficially buy into karma. You know, what goes around comes around. You're going to get yours eventually. Do you live like this? Well, if you do this, that will happen. If you do that, right? You, you would never go, well, I'm not, you'd go, I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Hindu. I'm not, I don't believe in that stuff. But, but do you? Something bad happens to someone who hurt you and you go, karma. Now listen, for sure, the Bible says that we do reap what we sow. There are consequences to our actions. But we're maybe a bit more superstitious than we'd like to believe. And that's what was ruling this man's heart was this kind of superstitious religion. He gets healed and you see that he very quickly moves from superstitious religion to a kind of formal religion. And this was the formal religion that, that really ruled the day. This was a formal religion of the Jewish leadership that were obsessed with the rules about following God rather than with God. 
I know how easy it is, isn't it, to become obsessed with the rules about following God more than you are about God? Look at what happens. Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. The man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, it says in verse 9. And in verse 10, what it should say is, so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, praise God, hallelujah, look at the work of God in your life. That's not what it says in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. If you're not familiar with what this means, the Sabbath was this day, this uh, one day a week that the Jews were to rest. They were to cease from working. Even today, if you go to Israel, what you'll find is if you go to a hotel on the Sabbath day, uh, there's a special elevator called the Shabbat elevator, um, and it's just programmed to stop at every floor automatically so that you don't have to press the button, because if you press the button, that would create ignition, that would be lighting a fire, that would be working. So you have a Sabbath elevator. It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take your bed. Wah, wah, wah. Sorry about your 38 years of pain and suffering, but you're breaking a rule. Who told you to do this? And you can see the pressure this guy feels. Because right away, he starts to go, well, it was the man who healed me. The man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They said, well, who is that? He's like, I don't even know. But then Jesus goes to find him. And says, hey, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man goes away and tells the Jews, it was Jesus who did it, right? So this isn't like, um, it's not like we see in John 9. We'll see in John 9 where the man in John 9 who is healed of his, of his blindness is like, I don't know who did it. This is your guy's problem, not mine. I, I was blind and now I see. Not my problem. This guy's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. It was Jesus. He did it. Very quickly, he's falling into the power of religion, formal religion, where you focus on the rules instead of, God himself. I've had a few times where I've been with people who are praying to receive Christ or have just recently become Christians and you pray with them and in their prayers they swear. Have you ever had this experience? It's an amazing thing. I love it because Jesus says we should come to him like a child and children are just honest and so someone who's always been swearing assumes well that's how you talk to God too. And at that moment, you have a bit of a choice, don't you? Do I rejoice that this person, whose life is in such a place that they feel comfortable dropping F-bombs to God, has come to God, or do I say, no, it's time to correct your language? Now, there's a time to talk about sanctifying our tongues and all that, but it isn't right there. Because you just rejoice that God has worked. That's not what these guys are doing. I love this quote by Jeff Surratt. He says this, Israel created an elaborate and efficient church that ran very well without God. The priests and Levites excelled at their roles. The sacrificial system was geared to handle the crowds at Passover efficiently. And the Jewish people knew their needs were met with consistency and care. 400 years after God stepped away, the Jews no longer missed him. They had created a church without God. And then one weekend, he showed up. He ignored their service plan, he tore up their resource table, and he violated their policies and procedures. Every time he came to a service, havoc ensued. Finally, they had to either completely change the way they did church or kill God. They chose to kill God. 
verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. Here's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. He's saying, listen, God took a Sabbath in creation, but he doesn't take a day off now. He's always working. My father's always working. I'm always working. What's he saying? Well, they get what he's saying. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Religion is so blind and so lame and so paralyzed and so dead that even while doing really detailed, impressive things in the name of God, it can miss God. What do superstitious religion and formal religion have in common? They're both all about you. Your effort, your goodness, your ability, your performance, your rule keeping, and they're not about God. And when God shows up, we get really uncomfortable. It's easier to keep the rules than to encounter a holy God. So life is not found in world apart from Jesus. It's not found in religion. It's found in, third, the life giver. The life giver. Notice how Jesus carries himself in this story. First, he initiates. Right? There's no indication that someone else, that this man is crying out to Jesus. Right? There's other parts in the Bible where people will say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, heal me. That's not what he's doing. Instead, this man is just one of a multitude of people there, and Jesus initiates. My wife Molly and I have this debate. It comes up a lot when our kids ask us about how we met and how we fell in love and how we got engaged. And the debate is really around who, who fell for who first. <laughs> Obviously, she fell for me first. I mean, that's just not a debate. But it's a debate to her, so, I, you know, whatever. But listen, when it comes to Jesus, there's no debate. He initiates. He leads the way. He seeks this man out. Why? Was he better than anybody? Clearly not. He doesn't even handle himself better after this miracle. It's just his grace. So Jesus initiates. Jesus also vivifies. I've never used that word in a sermon, but I really wanted to. <laughs> Jesus vivifies. What that means is he makes alive. Right? That's what's going on in this story, isn't it? I mean, this man is, yeah, he's alive. His heart's beating. His brain is functioning. But he's not alive. And now, after this encounter with Jesus, he gets a whole new life. And this is what God does for us in Christ. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, though we were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Jesus initiates and Jesus makes us alive. And because of this tremendous love that Jesus has for us, he also warns us. See, real love is honest. Real love is careful. What's striking in this is that this man has received this physical healing, but it seems like he hasn't quite received the spiritual healing. And some of you are here today, some of you are watching today, and you think, if I just experienced a miracle, then I'd believe. If I just experienced a healing, then I'd put my trust in God. Are you sure? Because this man didn't. 
This man experienced it, and moments later, he's seeking out the Jews to tattle on Jesus who healed him. So you think seeing is believing. It isn't. It's also an incredible indication that you can be incredibly blessed and yet still be spiritually dead. See, some of you, you are thinking, well, I make good money. My family's kind of at peace. I don't really love the Lord that much if I'm honest. I don't really ever pray. I don't really, if you, if you ever kind of take an inventory of like what's your relationship with God like, you'd go, oh, I'm not really sure. But, my, but I'm so blessed, I must be okay. This man was unbelievably blessed. And so Jesus warns him. Jesus goes and finds him in the temple. And look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, there's something far worse than being physically invalid. Turning against God when he comes in the flesh, that's far worse. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Very quickly, this man is afraid of those who might persecute him, those who might call him a rule breaker, those who might ostracize him again. I mean, finally, he has his life back. Finally, he has the chance to be accepted into society. Is he really going to risk all that right away by claiming allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth? No, it's far safer to stay with the religious. Jesus lovingly warns him, watch out. See, listen, friends, our, our deepest fear is not in a government that begins to persecute Christians. It's not in our tax ID status being removed. It's not in being told we can't meet. That's, that's all not, we don't wish for any of that stuff. But Jesus says, don't fear that. Don't fear cancel culture. Fear God, who you're going to have to give an account to, who you're going to have to stand before. And he might say, depart from me, I never knew you. Fear that. Jesus initiates, Jesus vivifies, Jesus warns, and Jesus endures. Already he's beginning to experience the persecution and the suffering that is going to cost him his life. And at no point here does he back down. At no point does he go, whoa, 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 you guys just misunderstood he goes, no, I, I am equal with God. In fact, the rest of this chapter, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks, is going to be Jesus answering this concern that he was making himself equal with God. So you have to come back next week, tune in next week, because we're going to talk about who Jesus is, what is his authority. But Jesus is the one who initiates, who makes life, who warns, who endures. And notice, Jesus at no point in here is like, oh, buddy, you're struggling to get into the water. Let me help you get in the water. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't go, you know what? Angel of the Lord stirs up. Well, what about the Son of God? <laughs> First one in, boys. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, get up. Take your bed and walk. And he did. Who else speaks? And life happens. 
Only one. Jesus was making himself equal with God. He sure was. And you will not find life apart from him. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you are stuck in sin and you are looking for life in other places other than him, repent, turn from it, come back to your first love, put your hope in Jesus. If you're far from God, if you're thinking, well, if I had a miracle, well, I'm okay because I'm blessed. You're not. And you will not find life. It's a, it's a planning fallacy to think you'll find life apart from Jesus. And yet he says, come to me. Come to me. Experience the life that you can have in me. Let's come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. There's just no one like him. Jesus, I'm amazed by your wisdom your composure, your security, your power, your goodness, your honesty. There's just no one like you, Lord. God, as much as I'm grateful that you've forgiven my sin, I'm even more grateful that we get to spend eternity with you. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God, help us to have life. To have it abundantly. To stop making mud pies in a slum. When we're offered the blessing of a holiday at the sea. We love you, Jesus. We pray in Christ's name.